Join Dr. Robert McGoring for Outliving Cancer, the podcast that provides each patient the tools and information they need to outlive their cancer. This is Dr. Robert McGorney with Outliving Cancer. Today, I'd like to speak about a topic of great importance for me and for the patients who want to find out how best to treat their cancers. The topic is the distinction between gene tests, what are known as genomic analyses, and functional tests, those that are known as phenotypic. I've mentioned this topic before, but it's fundamental to understanding how these different tests are performed, and more importantly, what they can tell you. So when we encounter patients, when they go to their doctors at major centers, university centers, and they say, well, I'd like to get this tissue study to pick drugs, one of the responses they get from the doctors is, We do the same thing. We do that too. That is a lie, patently untrue. They don't. They may say they do, but they don't. What they do is a gene test, a gene profile, genomic analysis. So let's examine what it is that a gene test does for you. Genomic analyses can be viewed in a way, like a map, a static map. It tells you where the streets are. It tells you where the intersections are. It tells you where the highway entrances are. So you know all that. Going in, you know that. It examines your DNA for your DNA roadmap. You can imagine that a little bit like a satellite map. Someone 300 miles off the Earth's surface takes a snapshot of New York City or Los Angeles, and tells you where the highways and roads and intersections and bridges are. And now you know pretty well how the city was laid out. But that's not what you use when you drive. When you do things, you need a level of dynamism, a a level of immediacy that a static map taken years earlier can't tell you. This This approach is more a functional or real-time approach. And you can think of it the way we use a Google map or MapQuest. It tells you not only that the road is there, but that there is a traffic jam or a plane crash or a construction site or or a, a, a jackknife, something that makes that road map less useful. Now, when a doctor tells a patient, oh, yeah, we do that too, we do that too. No, they don't. They do a genomic profile. Now, there are uses for genomic profiles, as we'll discuss, but genomic profiles cannot tell you the detailed information that you need as a patient to select drugs and treatments and combinations and targeted agents. In fact, uh, in October of 2018, the FDA issued a warning, and the warning, quote, the FDA warns against the use of many genetic tests with unapproved claims to predict patient response to specific medications, an FDA safety communication. Now, what they said, and I quote, 
genetic laboratory tests with claims to predict a patient's response to specific medications that have not been reviewed by the FDA and may not be supported by clinical evidence. The FDA is alerting patients and healthcare providers that claims for many genetic tests to predict a patient's response to specific medications have not been reviewed and may not have the scientific or clinical evidence to support this use for most medications. They finish, be aware that most genetic tests that make claims about the effects of a specific medicine are not supported by enough scientific evidence, information, or clinical evidence. Now, there is a role for certain genetic tests in certain circumstances, and they come with something called companion diagnostics. A companion diagnostic identifies the exact target, the specific gene aberrancy, the broken pathway that a drug will go after. So a companion diagnostic comes with the drug. For example, the drug erlotinib, sold as Tarceva, targets the epidermal growth factor. And when there is an epidermal growth factor mutation, the drug works. So if you get the companion diagnostic, which is a measure of your epidermal growth factor mutation, and you're positive for that mutation, then the likelihood of response to that drug is pretty good, and it would make sense to use that test. And there are other tests like that. ALK, ROS1, RET, CMET. There might be 10 or 15 of them. So if you're in that right group that carries one of those gene profile diagnostic test findings, then by all means, a genomic analysis is good for you. The trouble is that most cancer patients don't carry actionable mutations. Their gene profile doesn't give us any guidance because they don't, <clears throat> they don't fit into one of those 15 gene profiles. And for all those other million-plus people a year who don't have one of those targets, we're back to guessing. Now, the problem is that people have tried to extend gene profiles in a general sense to drug selection. And that is what the FDA is warning about. Unless you have a diagnostic finding for which there is a companion diagnostic, an EGFR mutation or an ALK mutation, then just willy-nilly applying gene profiles is not going to select drugs correctly. To do that, you need something that drills down to another level of complexity, and that is functionality, biological behavior, cellular behavior under conditions of stress. That's phenotype. That's biology. That's reality. A static photograph can't match a dynamic analysis. So to examine where gene profiles do fit into the collection of tools in cancer medicine, I think one needs an understanding of a rather fundamental distinction in medicine. And that distinction is for two phenomena. One is called prognosis, and the other is called prediction. Now, prognosis means knowing before. Prognosis tells you that without any specific measure, without any particular determination, you can make an assessment of someone's likelihood of benefit. This is what you do when you group people by category. So let's take a, let's take a look at a prognostic factor. 
Well, let's see. What if we wanted to find out if someone was going to get breast cancer? Are you likely to get breast cancer? All right. Well, a prognostic factor for your getting breast cancer is being a female. Because females have 100 times the incidence of breast cancer that men have. So I could step up to the plate and say, look, I'm really good at choosing people who are likely to get breast cancer because I can tell if they're men or women. It's true. Women get a lot more breast cancer than men. One out of eight women get breast cancer. Much, much, much fewer men get breast cancer. So that's a prognostic factor that tells you the likelihood of things. And there, there are lots of them. Prognostic factors mean you knowing things before you go in. For example, you know that someone who's seven feet tall will probably be a better basketball player than someone who's five foot three. I mean, you don't have to know how well they shoot or how well they dribble. You just have to know they're a lot taller. And those are prognostic factors. And they're unrelated to the individual. They're the group you fall in without any choice. Now, the other process in medicine and in cancer medicine is prediction. A predictive test, tell, a test tells you what you individually will do. So when you uh, assess someone's likelihood of response and you use a good objective measure, you can predict what's going to happen in that individual. It's not because they're a man or a, man or a woman. It's not because of high or low-grade disease. It's because you're sensitive or responsive or likely to benefit from a treatment. And a predictive test, predictive tests in general, are very hard to come by, very hard to come by. So the current use of genomics, for the most part, is to subcategorize patients into separate groups. And that's a perfectly appropriate and very reasonable and very defensible use of genomics. For example, we know that uh, certain gene profiles place people into higher risk categories. There are commercial uh, corporations, companies, that offer tests. One's called an Oncotype DX, another one's called a Mammoprint. And when a woman has breast cancer and she gets an Oncotype DX or a Mammoprint or others, those tests will say, you have a bad actor. You've got a cancer that's growing quickly, that's aggressive, it's got a lot of bad features, it looks like you're going to need something. So that's a prognosticator and very appropriate, and we use them all the time. Prognosticators say you're in the high-risk group and you're in the low-risk group. So in that regard, the prognostic determination is very valuable because it tells you you're in trouble. What the prognostic test cannot tell you is what to do about it. It can't tell you what drug to take or how to manage the problem. It can just tell you you have a problem. So you pay your money for an Oncotype DX or a Mammoprint, and it tells you you're in trouble or you're not in trouble. But it doesn't tell you how to get out of trouble. So when you go to the next level, it's, and we're going to give you chemotherapy. Well, which chemotherapy? How much? How long? How dose-intensive? Which drugs? Which combinations? We, well, we don't know that. We don't know. That's a prediction. We're just here to do prognosis. We're just here to tell you that you have a high-risk disease and you need something. Now, there was a recent report in scientific reports by a Chinese investigator, and they looked at 1,315 estrogen receptor positive and 634 triple negative and 1,365 patients total who got chemotherapy up front. And they used a prognosticator 
But the term of the paper, the title is Cancer Genomics Predicts Disease Relapse and Therapeutic Response to Neoadjuvant Chemotherapy of Hormone-Sensitive Breast Cancer. This is in Scientific Reports in 2020. So when you really read the paper, what do they do? Well, they take a group of aggressive tumor genes, genes that select for growing, rapidly proliferative tumors, TOPO2A, Aurora kinase, CDK1, and they say, well, this cancer is a bad actor. This cancer is a fast grower. This cancer is angry. So angry cancers that grow faster tend to be the ones that respond to chemotherapy better because the chemotherapies were designed to treat cells that are growing. That's the sort of uh, give and take of uh, two sides of the same equation. We develop drugs that stop cells from growing. Then we find rapidly growing cells, and then we use those drugs, and they work. Well, in a general sense, that's reasonable. I mean, the drugs were designed to do something. You find someone for whom they might work. And in general, you do a little better when you get chemotherapy. But if you think about that, it's again prognostic. It's back to categorization of groups. An angry tumor group needing something can be shown to likely do better when those drugs and combinations are used because the drugs were designed for the angry group. I mean, it, it's, an, it's an up and back. It's a little bit like saying, well, we watched this guy run and he won all the races so we think he'll win the Olympics. Okay, well, that guy's Usain Bolt, and he's the fastest runner in the world. So for you to say, well, the fastest runner in the world is likely to win a race, that's not really informative. What you want to know is the, 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 the black horse, the, the guy from behind who sneaks up and beats Usain Bolt unexpectedly. And that's where prediction, individualization, selection makes a difference. So just by way of examining those phenomena, I, I don't know if the term tautology is in common use for many people, but a tautology is a sort of self-evident phenomenon. And many, many genomic analyses are sort of tautological. They're tautologies. So for example, in mathematics, a mathematical formula that is always true is a tautology. An example, x equals y, or x doesn't equal y. Well, you've pretty much covered all the bases, so starting off, you already know what you knew before you started. In language, it's needless repetition. Something like a beginner who just got started. Well, he is a beginner. Of course he just got started. He's a beginner. And so these tautologies have become the substance of genomic analysis. A perfect example, as I mentioned earlier, about drugs that stop cells from growing work in cells that are growing. I mean, that's, that's tautologic. That's a tautology. And, and you can actually look at very, very specific examples of it. There is a drug that's widely used in chemotherapy called 5-fluorouracil. It was invented in 1958. It was invented. It was synthesized for a very specific purpose. There is an enzyme that cancer cells depend on. And that enzyme, when blocked, can damage cancer cells. 
It's a, actually, it's a great drug. It's not very toxic, and it works. It's used widely. So the drug 5-fluorouracil was specifically designed to block an enzyme. The enzyme is called thymidine phosphorylase. I'm sorry, thymidine synthetase. And thymidine synthetase is the target of 5-fluorouracil. The drug was designed to block that enzyme. So when the gene revolution occurred, people said, well, let's go and look for people whose cancer cells express thymidine synthetase. And they did. And they said that if you express the enzyme, you're going to be a good target for the drug. Okay. Well, the drug was designed for that purpose. You found people to give it to. But if you think about the difficulty and time and energy it takes to test all that drug and use this test, 5-fluorouracil is extraordinarily cheap and non-toxic. So whether or not you can pick the winners and losers for that drug, specifically drilling down onto the one enzyme that you know about, it's, it's an example of a test we didn't really need because two cycles of 5-fluorouracil doesn't cause hair loss, nausea, vomiting, or the side effects. The drug is cheap. So what you need isn't a test to reproduce what you already know. You need a test that tells you something you didn't know. That's predictive capability broadly applied to human tumors for many drugs and many combinations. And that's what a phenotypic analysis does. Not a genomic prognostic or an occasional predictive, but a broad-based predictive that uses every drug for every situation and every disease. So we return to the original principle that cancer is a disease of cells that want to stay alive. Cancer is a disease of cell survival. It's not a disease of cellular informatics. It isn't a disease of mutational aberrancies. It's a disease of cells using genes, normal or otherwise, to stay alive. And if that's the case, then cancer cells must be killed. The easiest way to find out how to kill a cancer cell is to kill it. So when we think about the gene concept, the profiling, we realize that the fact that you carry a gene does not tell you whether or not you'll use the gene or express it, which is the term used in cellular biology. Do you have the gene, yes or no? Are you going to use the gene, yes or no? And in what context will you use that gene to result in a biological outcome? That is functionality. That is phenotype. That is what you do in a tissue culture laboratory when you study, using an appropriate model, when you study cellular response to injury. That tissue biology <clears throat> is a three-dimensional, architectural, biological measure that determines dynamic response, actual cellular response to injury. When a, a cell is injured, it must react. And if that reaction leads to cell death, then you have a good drug. A gene, present or absent, doesn't tell you whether the cell is going to use it, how it'll use it, what it'll use it with. So these static measures fail to capture the dynamism, the biological reality of human tissue. In the laboratory, you have the extraordinary luxury of not only measuring activity, as it were, something that 
kills a cell, but you can also look at how things interact. Now, that's impossible for a gene profile. There's no way that a static measure of a cell can tell you what happens when not one but two drugs are added together. Synergy is impossible for genomic profiles. Similarly, antagonism, drugs that don't work together, impossible to predict from a static measure. So in the discovery process, we think about the way that genes perform and the way that genomic platforms perform is ultimately an application of artificial intelligence. An artificial intelligence platform, more than anything, rules out the wrong answer. So what gene profile and gene testing and artificial intelligence is doing is testing every hypothesis until it comes to the, to the one that isn't wrong. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sort of backward reasoning. But, but they rule out all the wrong answers to leave you the right answer. And that's how computers work. They're very fast and very dumb. And humans are slow and very smart. So you want to get closer and closer to smart thinking. It was uh, Sigmund Freud who said that we function from error to error until one discovers the entire truth. So we're basically applying a genomic platform, an artificial intelligence platform, to rule out the wrong answer and hope that the one we settle upon is right. The trouble in that is that you reach a point, you reach a, a, a threshold where you cannot rule out any more answers. You, you have to go to the next level, biological level, and to test your hypothesis, to determine whether your genomic uh, removal of the wrong answer approach is going to work, you have to treat people. So the testing of the hypothesis in that platform is treatment. Now, when you treat people based on a good idea, more often than not, it doesn't work. A study done by the University of Florida that I've quoted before showed that in clinical trials, when you test the new drug, the smart idea, the gene-selected agent, against the old drug, in this study, only one out of seven clinical trials successfully showed that the new drug, the smart drug, was better. So that means six out of seven people who sign up for the trial don't get better, or they don't get better uh, with any better with the new drug. So when you look at gene profiles and when you compare them to phenotypic cellular biological studies, you realize that there are very deep-seated problems with this mindset that may never be resolved. One of the problems is that a gene profile, when studied, when you buy one, for quite a lot of money, actually, it gives you no genes are abnormal, or a lot of genes are abnormal, or a few genes are abnormal, but it can't really tell you what those genes are doing. So you find yourself in some patients, I just looked at a study the other day, the patient must have had the better part of a dozen, 12 different genetic aberrancies. So if there are 12 different genetic aberrancies, which one do you treat? How do you say, well, based on your STK11 or your uh, KRAS uh, or whatever, which of these genes, which of these so-called uh, mutations, what are, which of these amplifications, whatever, 
is going to be the one that's driving the bus here. And the problem is that nobody knows. And so you have to take the drug. You carry a BRAF, will a BRAF inhibitor work? Take the drug. You carry a MEC-ERK abnormality? Take the drug. Well, the trouble is these drugs come with side effects, toxicities, and they're extremely expensive. So you'd like a, a, a better level of certainty. You'd like a, a, a more um, predictive methodology, and that's phenotype. That's cellular biology. What does a cell do when it's exposed to a drug? If the cell dies when it gets exposed to the drug, that drug works. We don't always know why it works, but we know that it works. And so what patients are looking for when they, when they go to their doctor, when they request a gene profile, when they, when they get these special studies, what do they want? They want answers, not questions. They don't want a collection of gee whiz, golly, this is interesting. They want to know, what should I do to get rid of this cancer. So to continue the sort of Freudian analogy, we know that people make decisions when it comes to affairs of the heart without any clear scientific principle. But there is an attempt to use sort of scientific method for dating. I'm sure you have heard of dating services. So where Freud said that in affairs of the heart, there is no clear prediction, whereas in business matters, one can intellectualize. Well, there's a certain theme there that there's something above and beyond just the data that leads to the chemistry of personal affection. So a dating service is trying to turn that affair of the heart into an algorithm. I've never used one, but I know of them. And they have things like questionnaires. You do a data dump and you collect up all the features of your personality that are going to match with someone else. And, you know, I like sunsets, walks on the beach, white wine and golden retrievers. Well, let's get married. Doesn't work like that. I think in reality, most people must meet face to face. You need to have that personal experience you need to have that chemistry, as it were, for you to really find the, the person, the people that you want to spend time with. There's a, there's a deeper level of biological reality that isn't always going to come out of a questionnaire. So gene tests in their own right are sort of genomic questionnaires. Do you have this gene do you have that gene? Is it an amplification or a mutation? And they do their best to fit us, biological complex systems, into their dictates. You're going to do this because you have this. More often than not, it doesn't work. So these genomic questionnaires can't even remotely approach the accuracy of cellular biological studies, phenotypic studies. So what a ex vivo analysis of programmed cell death, the EVA-PCD technique that we use in my laboratory at the Nagorno Cancer Institute, what that is, is a measure of biology. It's a measure of functionality. It's a measure of the three-dimensional reality that constitutes us as living beings. So it's a kind of 
in person, up close and personal. And again, cancer patients don't want ans- don't want questions; they want answers. Now, to leave you, there's a quote that I often think of when I think of gene tests. I talked a little bit about this enzyme that they knew was there, and they could find it, and then they could try to drug it. Or studying breast cancers that are angry to know that they're angry. It doesn't help. What you need is, what do you do about an angry person? What do you do when that thymidylate synthase expression doesn't correspond to a response? What do you, what's the next level? And that level, that level of certainty comes from studying the actual reality, the biology the physical reality, the phenotype. So, in a way, gene tests, in all of their simplification and and, um, reductionist approaches, gene tests are a little bit like a quote from Donald Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense under Gerald Ford and George Bush. Donald Rumsfeld was talking about terrorism. In a way, cancer is a terrorist entity because it's out to get us any way it can. It doesn't play by any rules. And it's very hard to force terrorists to do what you tell them to do because the kinds of warfare that we're accustomed to and the kind of warfare they're fighting are two different things. It's guerrilla warfare. And, and so those asymmetric assaults on our well-established systems often don't play to our advantage. So what Donald Rumsfeld said, which I've always sort of remembered as rather clever, he said that when you're dealing with these sorts of terrorist entities... There are known knowns, things that we know we know. And in a way, in cancer, that's kind of like thymidylate synthase or angry tumors. We know those. There are also known unknowns. There are things that we really don't know, and we, we recognize that we don't know them. So, so we come to a point where we administer a drug or do something because we really can't tell anymore. And then there are things that we don't know that we don't know. And those are really dangerous because you, you have no idea what's going on. And terrorism is a little bit like the last. So with the gene profile analogy, we can find things we know about. We can give people treatments when we can't figure out anything more. But there's a whole layer of complexity that we can't probe because we don't know what it is. That layer of complexity, that layer of uncertainty, that biological reality, is where I live. I live discovering the things we don't know we don't know. And when I do things in the laboratory, sometimes I don't know why they work. I just know that they work. And when patients get treated for cancer, if you say to a patient, I'm not going to give you this treatment because I don't know why it works, but I'm sure it will work, the patient would say, forget about it. Just give it to me. I don't care if you know why it works. But the problem today, this top-heavy, top-down science, is that we only give things to people when we figured it all out and tested it all and know why it does when we want to drill down so deeply that we forget that the job is to cure cancer. And a lot of the time in the laboratory, when when I find something out, when I see something, I'm not quite sure why it works. I just know that it works. I know that it works. And that is how I practice. I give patients treatments that work. And often, I don't know why. But to be quite honest, I don't think the patients who get better really care. 
everything.